This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 5th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Fourth Amendment continues to face challenges from the so-called special needs of federal authorities and the tantalizing promise of spying technology at even the local level. At the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event in Middleburg, Virginia, I spoke with Matthew Feeney and Julian Sanchez about the challenges and promise of a more substantial Fourth Amendment in the years to come. Today we're talking about the Fourth Amendment in the digital age, so I'll begin with this. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. But we're talking about the digital age, of course, and things uh, have changed since uh, I think a lot of people in, in courts, uh, and one judge in particular, which we'll get to at some point today, uh, in this discussion, uh, views, might view this as quaint. Uh, but Julian, I wanna, I'll, I'll start with you um, to set the stage here to get to uh, how the courts think about the Fourth Amendment. Uh, we'll talk about the Katz case, but what was the, uh, the environment of judicial thinking about your right to privacy when it comes to new technology mm-hmm. before uh, CATS was decided by the Supreme Court? You know, so there's not a lot of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence until really the, the, the 20th century. There's a you know, straggle handful of cases, but um, a lot of that was actually uh, shoehorned into sort of due process arguments. Um, and the first real case of technology intersecting with the Fourth Amendment comes in the 20s. There's a fascinating character named Roy Olmsted, uh, who had been a, a Seattle um, police lieutenant. The, the, he was succeeded very young. The local papers called him the baby lieutenant. Um, and then he was drummed off the force and became essentially a bootlegging kingpin and local celebrity. The papers eventually called him the, uh, the bootleg king of the Puget Sound. Uh, and uh, he was... A fascinating story here that I'll skip, but he um, was essentially the target of a wiretap, as uh, folks understand. Crimes involving uh, drugs often require uh, surveillance to be prosecuted effectively, um, especially if you're trying to get to the top of the chain, someone who doesn't ever uh, occupy the same room as the contraband. Um, And the court in that case uh, considered whether this warrant, uh, a wiretap that had been installed without a warrant, was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And what they held was not that it was an unreasonable search, but that no search at all had occurred, that the wiretap was not a search, so the question of reasonableness or a warrant didn't even arise. And the reason for that is that at the time, the idea of a search for Fourth Amendment purposes was conceptualized almost entirely in terms of common law trespass. Um, the premise for you know most of the, t- the time after the enactment of the Constitution had been that the way Fourth Amendment rights would be vindicated would be by essentially private suit against a trespasser. Um, so if you, this is not, as we now have it, an exclusionary rule where um, if your Fourth Amendment rights are violated, the evidence is, uh, isn't admissible as fruits of a poisonous tree, but rather that um, the agent who had searched without a warrant um, would be liable for trespass. And you could vindicate your rights in that way by, uh, by suing. Um, and in that context, the court held um, that what had occurred was tantamount to eavesdropping or overhearing. 
Um, the, the surveillance had happened by the faculty of listening. Uh, and therefore, the concept of a search as something involving a property incursion um, wasn't applicable at all. Um, in a very prescient dissent there, uh, Justice Brandeis worried that as uh, advances in, in the sciences and what he called the, the psychic, uh, psychic arts uh, advance, it might become possible to reproduce in court the contents of a locked drawer without ever breaking that lock. Um, as, as pretty uh, analogous to the kind of things it's technologically possible to do now. And it took about 40 years uh, before in a case called CATS involving a listening device placed uh, on the, actually on the exterior of a phone booth used by a bookie um, for the court to reverse it. So there was that case and, and uh, another one called Berger or happened around the same time. Um, Katz is the one we remember because it's the one that articulated a different standard, right? Uh, this is where the court recognizes that the technological presumptions that were in effect at the time of ratification, that is, to conduct a search um, requires a property incursion, were not really technologically applicable anymore. And therefore, to the extent the Fourth Amendment was not just about protecting the peace of the home against disruption, but about protecting the privacies of life, uh, people's uh, intimacy, um, and to the extent the Fourth Amendment had been uh, enacted with an eye to cases involving warrantless search as a means of punishing uh, anti-government speech, that it would, it would fail to serve that function um, if you could essentially find out what people were writing and saying um, without a trespass. Uh, they shifted to a conception of a search in the Fourth Amendment that was delinked from property. They instead looked to uh, reasonable expectations of privacy, or in the extended formulation, a subjective expectation of privacy that uh, society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, which of course, in a way, solves one problem of technological obsolescence, but opened up a very large can of worms. All right, so uh, to you, Matthew Feeney, uh, we have this backdrop where essentially courts have not viewed uh, wiretapping as a search at all, because they're they're looking at uh, uh, they're thinking about it in a completely different way than we are, are compelled to think about it today. But what what is most useful here, or what is very useful here, are the actual facts of the Katz case, because we're talking about bulky th things that required a lot of man hours. There was direct human supervision at all mm -hmm. times. And it, it just seems the facts of this case really put the court in a weird spot because they, they're not looking to the future. They're just looking at this bulky technology that we, th we would think of as quaint today. Yeah, so Katz is decided in 1967, and the, the test, the so-called Katz test, is uh, definitely still with us today. And yeah, I do think it's worth keeping in mind that at the time, we have to think about the actual process that uh, the FBI went through to conduct this kind of surveillance. So Charles Katz lived on uh, Sunset Boulevard. He had an apartment there, and he would walk down the street to three phone booths to uh, engage in uh, illegal gambling, handicapping. Uh, could have a whole other panel about why that was illegal, but uh, he would communicate with Miami and Boston mostly. Uh, of these three booths, the FBI got into an arrangement with the phone company so that they would shut down one of the phone booths, and then they installed one eavesdropping device in between and on top of the remaining two so that they could uh, listen to the conversations. And uh, I don't need to tell anyone in this room, of course, but it's uh, the case that uh, the technology has significantly improved uh, since 1967. All right, so uh, what did Katz give us uh, to either of you? Well, I think for 
the, the purpose of this conversation, one of the most important uh, developments after Katz is the development of uh, what's called the third party doctrine, which was uh, developed and, and codified in a series of cases, cases in the 1970s, where the court uh, said that you uh, don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy to information you volunteer to third parties. Uh, now, this has prompted a lot of interesting debate about what it really means to volunteer uh, information. Some of the implications of this are that you, uh, according to the court, right, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy to uh, details about uh, who you call, so phone metadata. Uh, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy to bank records because you volunteered that information to the bank or you volunteered it to uh, the phone company. Uh, and again, it's another case where technology since the 1970s has uh, improved, and it's one of the many issues with the test that uh, Julian alluded to. All right. So uh, I want to say for a long time, nothing happened in Fourth Amendment law, but that's not, not uh, first strictly the, strictly First true. the planet cooled, then the dinosaurs came. <laughs> right. uh, but j jumping, let's jump ahead. Um, in 2013, uh, the spring of 2013, uh, James Clapper comes before the U.S. Senate. He has asked a very direct question, a question that he knew was coming from uh, Ron Wyden, senator from Oregon. And James Clapper, who I think uh, some commentators said afterward, after watching his answer, this is a guy I want to play poker with. Yeah. He scratched his head and uh, essentially lied to the U.S. Senate um, and said there is no large-scale uh, collection of Americans' data. Not, witt not wittingly. Not wittingly. Not wittingly. So, um, I, I feel like I have to point out every time that we talk about this that, yes, this guy lied to the U.S. Senate and other people have been uh, put in jail for less. Um, but what did that, what did, what, what did we know at that point? I mean, Ron Wyden knew he was lying yeah. because he had access to privileged information. But what did that, what did that mean? Right. Uh, so as we learned, uh, thanks largely to the Snowden disclosures, although there had been previous reports, I think, in USA Today, on a program like this with less detail and confirmation. Um, the NSA was currently collecting essentially all domestic uh, and international telephone records, meaning not the contents of the calls, but the kind of information that's on a phone bill um, about uh, when a call is initiated, what the number on the other end point is, and when it terminates, uh, <clears throat> and had been previously collecting uh, in very large quantities international internet metadata, meaning uh, information at least at the international gateway hubs um, concerning you know what uh, sites people are visiting and who is emailing whom. Uh, and the reason, of course, they were able to do this is that third-party doctrine. It's important to note the initial case um, that is usually associated with the third-party doctrine. Um, there's really two. One involves bank records, and one <clears throat> involves uh, uh, telephone records uh, in a case where essentially a woman was getting. Uh, obscene phone calls from someone who had earlier burgled her. Uh, and uh, in that case, uh, I think actually you have a pretty good narrow argument that one did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Phone books at the time um, pretty openly said, you know, sort of in the, in the beginning, if you are getting obscene phone calls, we will help the police find the person who's calling you. Um, I think you could, you could say people were on fair notice that that wasn't information the company was going to keep private. Um, but they had gone much further than that and said two things. First, um, that what the company promises you 
Um, whether they guarantee that information is going to be confidential is not relevant to the assessment of whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Merely the fact that you have willfully con willingly conveyed it to this third party is enough to vitiate your privacy interest. Um, but also significantly is sort of the point at which the decision was made. It's not the point at which you ask, what is this and therefore, would it be unreasonable to conduct it without a warrant? Um, rather, the, the sort of inflection point, the locus of intervention, is the question, is this a search at all? Uh, and the problem there is that if you focus on what's reasonable, um, it's very easy to distinguish between a case like that and a case where um, millions or hundreds of millions of people's records are gathered really on no suspicion at all. Um, if instead, though, the question is, is this even a search, then you have a kind of multiplication by zero problem, right? There are zero searches in this particular instance that we've described. Therefore, if you multiply it by 100 million, 200 million, there are still zero searches and therefore zero privacy interest implicated by the Fourth Amendment. Um, so this is a case where intuitively uh, scale matters, the fact that this is uh, a kind of information being gathering done about one specific person in a specific context without a warrant um, makes a difference. But the analytic frame the court had placed on it, in, in essence, didn't enable them to make that distinction. Um, so you have a case where technology has made it now feasible not to get uh, this kind of metadata information about an individual in a particular case, but to essentially uh, seamlessly gather millions of people's records and, and sift and filter and search them uh, after the fact. And the way the court has decided to conceptualize that in Fourth Amendment terms leaves them essentially incapable of saying, this is different. So give me a practical sense of what that would have meant for uh, my phone calls and what that means for uh, you know, the presumption of innocence or establishing probable cause, uh, things like that. Like if I've committed a crime uh, or someone has committed a crime and somehow they've, they've, in, they've through gathering up my private, what I believe to be private data, data that they've collected effortlessly, that they say, well, you know, we, based on looking at all of this data, you look like a guy who probably committed a crime. Right. Um, so, yeah, as a, as a statutory matter, there are some uh, constraints. Right? So the court had decided that this kind of data, again, until a recent case called Carpenter, is essentially categorically outside the bounds of Fourth Amendment regulation. Um, but there were statutory uh, limits. Um, so there was a criminal, not very powerful ones, not comparable to what the Fourth Amendment requires, but um, essentially basic subscriber information for telecommunications purposes could be uh, obtained by effectively the equivalent of a subpoena. Um, doesn't require much in the way of judicial oversight at all, and then more detailed information of the kind that reveals exactly who you're calling and, and for how long um, would require a judicial order, um, but on a, a relatively low standard of demonstrating relevance to an authorized investigation, uh, to a, or in the criminal case, an investigation into a sort of specific crime. Um, and the, what happened in the, um, the case of the NSA programs was that the court had been convinced in secret. Um, perhaps they would have been less easily convinced if they had, you know, there had been uh, more public uh, dispute about this, but um, had been convinced to construe relevance in, in a, a quite novel way, um, such that the entire database of people's calls would be considered relevant to not any particular investigation, but the kind of enterprise of investigating 
terrorism, um, if that database could later be searched to discover the individually relevant records, and this was the most efficient and feasible uh, way to conduct such, such searches. So what does that do uh, to the presumption of innocence? Now, I, I understand it in, national in the national security context, in, in many cases, we're not talking about US persons necessarily. But to the extent that we are talking about people in the United States, what does that do to the presumption of innocence uh, in criminal cases if if this is used in criminal cases, right? I mean, I think one of the one of the problems that create when well, it is indeed used in criminal cases. Uh, um, uh, well, maybe not from this particular program, but one of the things we discovered is that uh, information gathered under foreign intelligence authorities is being, with some frequency, funneled uh, to domestic law enforcement agencies like the Drug Enforcement Agency. It's part of a process called parallel construction. They'll essentially tell the domestic agency, "We've learned." X, Y, and Z are going to happen. You know, a deal is going to happen at this time and place. Um, now that you know this, can you reconstruct from inf you know information that's not uh, an intelligence wiretap uh, a basis for suspicion so that you can uh, justify a warrant to search for the evidence that we've already told you is there? Um, and so essentially, the criminal investigative authorities would gin up on their own, kind of being told in advance. This is the thing that that you have to prove. Go go work backwards and prove it to a court, um, and and uh, generally not disclose this to the defense or even the um, the judge in the case for fear of dis uh, compromising intelligence authorities. But yeah, the problem for the presumption of innocence is in part a, a problem of statistics, and this is something my my uh, former colleague uh, uh, Jim Harper has uh, has written I think very compellingly about, which is. Um, there's a kind of false positive problem, which is when you are looking at a sufficiently large pool um, without, uh, in a kind of algorithmic way, even if you have a high accuracy filter, false positives tend to swamp accurate hits. And I'll give you an example, right? If you have a test for a very rare disease, let's say a disease that occurs, you know, one, one person out of 10,000, even if it's 99% accurate, if you are indiscriminately testing the general population without some kind of advanced suspicion that they may be showing symptoms, um, the fact that the disease is so infrequent, as for example, terrorist plotters are very, very infrequent in the population, even a very accurate test is going to generate a lot more false hits than accurate hits. Uh, and you're gonna have the problem intelligence folks sometimes refer to as drinking from a fire hose, uh, trying to um, essentially find the, uh, not the needle in the haystack, but the needle in a pile of fake needles. Um, when, you, you know, and, and this is borne out, I think, by the results, uh, when we've looked at the efficacy of uh, a lot of these bulk surveillance programs, uh, which is, um, again, they're kind of defended upon exposure, but when you look back and when inspector generals of these agencies have asked, well, what concrete benefits did you get uh, from this massive collection? Uh, what they said is essentially, well, in cases that represent actual counterintelligence successes, um, the value of the bulk collection was only to duplicate information we were already getting through traditional targeted orders. It turned out that um, you just didn't get more accurate hits from siphoning up everything um, than you were through the traditional mechanism where you were focusing on people there was already some reason to suspect. Uh, uh, Matthew Feeney, the 
let's get to the Carpenter case because that's a lot of that's a huge amount of background. But in Carpenter, as in a lot of cases involving uh, criminal violations, Mr. Carpenter is not a good guy. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Right. Um, so, <laughs> what was he? What was he accused of doing? And what was the what was the court's rationale? Right. Uh, so Timothy Carpenter and a couple of his buddies uh, committed a string of armed robberies in the Detroit area. Uh, ironic, it's sort of ironic that they were robbing uh, cell phone stores because uh, they were uh, captured in large part uh, because of uh, cell site location information, uh, which is uh, information gathered from cell towers. And uh, they were able to, using that information, which they did not need a warrant to access, they were able to locate him at the uh, at the scene of the crime, uh, secured a conviction, uh, sentenced to 114 years in prison. Uh, he uh, appeals to the Supreme Court saying that uh, he his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. Uh, and it, I think it's, uh, you know, it might be too soon to tell, but it's easily one of the most uh, consequential Fourth Amendment cases in recent memory. And the, uh, the decision was announced earlier this year where uh, it was a very, very narrow decision, but a welcome one. So uh, five to four, uh, the court ruled that Carpenter did have a reasonable expectation of privacy to, privacy to his physical location as ascertained through cell site location information after six or seven days. Uh, and they arbitrary. were very so arbitrary, arbitrary, arbitrary. Well, yeah. Arbitrary. So uh, if it starts on Tuesday, and yeah. yes, exactly. So there's uh, and, and Roberts, who who wrote the majority, uh, was very clear. Said, look, this doesn't touch uh, other traditional surveillance methods. It doesn't touch national security. Uh, it's very very narrow. Uh, Gorsuch wrote a, a dissent, which is basically a concurrence, uh, mostly because he wasn't happy with us. It seems to me some of the ACLU lawyers' answers during oral argument. Uh, and the brief. Uh, Clarence Thomas wrote a dissent, which made me think he might actually have thought Olmsted was correctly decided. But uh, it's, uh, uh, so it's it's a welcome step. But we should keep in mind that uh, Carpenter is important, and it's a, the right kind of outcome, right? But it doesn't touch traditional CCTV cameras. It doesn't touch drones, facial recognition, license plate readers. Uh, it's a welcome step forward, but there's still a whole trove of surveillance methods left available to law enforcement. Uh, absent, which they don't need a warrant for. Okay, so uh, to Carpenter may impact at some point down the line mm -hmm. this notion that uh, courts have adopted and have used for a long time that if you hand your information uh, by whatever means to a third party that you have no legitimate privacy interest in that information uh, not being used against you in court. So let's talk about very briefly a case called Clayman v. Obama, mm. um, and specifically, uh, Judge Kavanaugh has been uh, yeah, yeah. on the uh, on the stand, so to speak, uh, for the last couple weeks. Um, what did that case decide, and what was Judge Kavanaugh's view? Oh, I, I, uh, so this was uh, a, a challenge to the NSA's telephony metadata program that Julian discussed earlier. Uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, Clayman claimed that uh, you know this program violates the Fourth Amendment, and uh, the the court where Kavanaugh sits you know dismisses this, saying, "Look, uh, the the program is consistent with uh, the third party doctrine." Uh, and then Clayman appeals again, saying, "No, I want an en banc uh, hearing on this." And what's interesting here is that the court declines, and Kavanaugh writes. 
uh, what I don't know how to put the very optional uh, concurrences. Uh, this is rather odd, and it's solo. He writes this saying, uh, "Look, the it is true that uh, the this program is consistent with uh, the third party doctrine." But then he goes on to say, uh, "But uh, we should also keep in mind that the this program satisfies what he calls a special needs." Uh, and cites the 9-11 Commission report as evidence of this. And the special needs doctrine is uh, something in Fourth Amendment law that applies to a very narrow in, in time and space circumstances where uh, the government might have to uh, engage in some kind of searches. So an example might be uh, drunk driving checkpoints or drug testing high school athletes, things like this. Uh, if Kavanaugh is correct, and I don't think he is, I mean, this would be by far the widest application of the special needs doctrine. Uh, it's important to point out that uh, it's not a particularly good citation because uh, the 9-11 Commission report does not explicitly ever recommend the kind of surveillance uh, that was being challenged. And indeed, the Privacy and Civil Liberty Oversight Board in their report on this program, uh, as Julian mentioned, uh, weren't able to find, I think, any instance where uh, it had been directly where they've managed to disrupt yep. a, or get a terrorism conviction because of the program. Uh, but no, it's, a, it's an interesting insight into how Kavanaugh views uh, the Fourth Amendment and certainly makes uh, me a little nervous. Yeah. I mean, it's unnerving, I think, in part because you can understand a lower court is bound by Supreme Court precedent. And so for a lower court to say, uh, well, you know, uh, Smith uh, and uh, Miller are still good law. And so there's no Fourth Amendment interest in these kinds of records. And, you know, we're sort of bound by that. Uh, I would, it's too bad, but but understandable. Um, this was really kind of a going above and beyond to add to the pool of Fourth Amendment exceptions. Um, and again, you know, instances like why you can be searched by government agents at an airport uh, for boarding a plane without a warrant. Um, uh, to add to the pool with almost no real argument. I mean, you sort of said, well, this fits into a special needs exception, and there's not really any explanation of why that is. And, and uh, you know, uh, acknowledging my kind of bias here, it really doesn't seem to be the case that this is the kind of thing that fits easily into any existing special needs doctrine. There's a, um, there's a, there is an existing kind of presumption not really validated directly by the Supreme Court, but assumed by the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of a kind of foreign intelligence exception um, that they've characterized as applying to um, surveillance uh, between U.S. persons and uh, suspected agents of foreign powers. Um, so that the, the, if this is done without a warrant, um, the kind of exigencies of uh, surveilling foreign agents um, justify uh, conducting that without a warrant. Um, and that's obviously uh, much narrower than the kind of broad-based uh, broad vacuuming of data that was, uh, uh, that was at issue in these cases. So it's uh, unsettling that he was sort of volunteering to further erode uh, uh, an already attenuated Fourth Amendment. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, Sarus Farivar has written a book called Habeas Data, which I'll commend to you if this, if you want to do a deep dive into this, these kinds of questions. Uh, Habeas Data is the, is the name of the book, and I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, the court, the big point that he makes in that book is that we're, the court is always well behind yeah. technology. And is there any way, and then we'll open it up for questions here, is there any way to, for the court to get ahead of technology and, and, to, and to say uh, prospectively, 
these kinds of things are clear violations of uh, the Fourth Amendment of Fourth Amendment rights. I well, I'll, I'll take a stab. I mean, I think uh, it's been very clear to me. I think uh, that that a lot of the, the Fourth Amendment cases you see in recent history are are very narrow and talk about very specific kinds of things. Uh, so uh, absent the Supreme Court taking a, a brave giant bite, making a just proclaiming that something like the mosaic theory or something is now law, I, I don't think, yeah, I think they'll be continually playing catch up. Julie? I think there are structural, re and this is speaking of lags, it's worth mentioning that um, the question of whether email stored email held on a server is protected by the Fourth Amendment was really first settled by a high appellate court, and they finally said yes, in, I think, 2012, when email was not exactly a new technology. It still hasn't really been directly addressed by the Supreme Court, and it still leaves open a question of all sorts of other communications data um, that is uh, not email, but held in, on some third-party server. I think structurally and sort of institutionally, it's difficult for the court to get ahead of tech for a couple of reasons. The first is just they define cases and controversies. They're supposed to um, rule on the case before them and not speculate about um, different technological situations that might occur. So necessarily, by the time something makes its way to an appellate court, let alone the Supreme Court, uh, we're talking about generally, right, someone who has lost a couple of cases at lower levels. So necessarily, you're not talking about something involving the most cutting edge technology. Um, and also, you know, they look at individual cases, individual interests, when what is concerning about a lot of novel privacy technologies is not just how intrusive it is it at the individual level, but how concerning is it that this is something that scales, that it's not merely uh, a mechanism that permits monitoring of an individual, but that it allows monitoring at population scales that was previously simply not feasible. The kind of total synoptic view that has been uh, the fantasy, but never in practice achievable of effectively every totalitarian society in history. Um, we do see exceptions occasionally. Uh, there's a, a case called Kylo from 2001 involving the use of thermal imaging technology to look for a marijuana growing operation. Uh, and at that time, it was fairly crude. It really was not going to tell you in detail what people were doing in the home. This was not x-ray specs. It was showing the fact that someone had a huge set of grow lights. Um, and it was you know, pretty clear that this was some kind of internal growery. Um, but in that case, uh, the late uh, Justice Scalia uh, wrote that they were essentially not bound only to look at the exact version of the technology before them, but to try and craft general principles. And they said, well, look, the use of technology that goes well beyond the senses, um, that, that really does something that's not merely assistive, like a binoculars, but that does something the senses cannot do, um, in order to gather information about the interior of the home, a sort of specifically protected place, um, is, is a search. Um, and we're not going to tie it to how accurately um, this particular technology can see people or activities inside the home um, at this particular level of development. And I thought that, I think that is a, an important and prescient decision, but it is an outlier. Matthew Feeney directs Cato's project on emerging technologies, and Julian Sanchez is a Cato Senior Fellow. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>